0: underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer budget-friendly flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment the plans last nearly three years in some states with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals so for whatever tomorrow brings united healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you learn more at uh1.com
1: green and black's organic chocolate a selection of ethically sourced flavors combined with a rich cocoa intensity Welcome back to the Irish Times Women's Podcast. Well, big week in my house and in many of your houses. Uh, The kids go back to school tomorrow, or perhaps yours were already back last week. And maybe you don't have kids yourself, but your nieces, nephews, grandchildren, and all the little people in your lives have been telling you about the new school regime of pods and bubbles, staggered school hours, designated drop-offs, masks or no masks, school ties or no school ties, freshly laundered uniforms every night. Well, there's a lot going on. We won't know for a while what the impact of the school's opening in terms of COVID-19 is, but what many people around the country are grappling with this week is a new school normal and children who've been out of the school system for six months, who as well as being delighted to get back and see their friends again, may be anxious or nervous about what they are facing into. And there's a particular impact on women, as there always is when children are involved. So we'll be looking at that in this episode, too. Later on, I'll be bringing you a conversation I had with child psychologist Mally Coyne, who has written a book called Love In, Love Out about parenting anxious children. Today seems like the right time to bring you that one, and we'll be talking to mother of seven, Jen Hogan, and parenting columnist in The Irish Times, about all those back to school fears and all the news around that. But first, you've been sending me in your happy happenings since lockdown began. So thank you very much for that. And we're going to have a bundle of books to send to the best story that comes in to the women's podcast at irishtimes.com. That's the email address or on Instagram, Twitter or Facebook at IT Women's Podcast. This one comes in from April, who wrote about her sister, Erica, who decided to get married two weeks ago because she was so fed up waiting for her postponed date in March 2021. And April says with close family and bridal party herself and her husband got married last Saturday in Lion Church in Dublin and had such a relaxed and great time in Marco Pierre White's restaurant. It wasn't exactly what they wanted or I imagine what they planned, but they gained control back from Covid and got hitched. It didn't feel like we were in the middle of a pandemic. It was joyful and special and so much fun. It lifted all of us, even all the neighbours who came to see the bride off. And there was a crowd outside the church to wish them both well. And that comes in from April about the wedding of her sister, Erica. So there you go. A bit of happy news amidst all this uncertainty that still rumbles on. And some other happy news is that I want to remind you, our book club is back soon. We haven't had one for what feels like ages. So Neve Towie, Bernice Harrison and my mum, Anne Ingle, will be back soon. And if you want to join in what we're reading, it is Rodden by Curtis Sittenfield, which is a book that imagines what would have happened to Hillary Clinton had she turned down Bill Clinton's proposal of marriage. So Hillary without Bill, what her life would have been. That's Rodham by Curtis Sittenfield, if you want to read along with us. And we'll be with you on the book club soon. Now, I also wanted to read out a very good letter that was in The Irish Times on Saturday referring to a court report that appeared in the paper during the week, which many, people were not happy with at all it concerned a teenage girl who'd been sexually abused now the irish Times subsequently took down the article and apologized for it and the way it was written which it was very heartening to see that but alan eustace was among the people who wrote to the paper to object and he's written a very strong letter uh, alan is in Merino in dublin and i just wanted to read it out to you because i think it's important Sir, I was disappointed by the tone of your coverage of court proceedings relating to a 15-year-old victim of sexual abuse. On the basis of your own reporting, this child has been raped multiple times by a number of unidentified men. To describe this, as it was in the piece, as highly sexualized behaviour on her part, and to refer to her, quotes dressing inappropriately, engaged in risk-taking behaviour with men on social media, having exchanged sexual favours for drugs and being coked out of it is disgraceful. Whatever terms used by the victim herself or by counsel for the child and family agency, your newspaper does not have to reproduce them as if they were neutral descriptions of the events in such exacting detail. This is not, as the article suggests, quotes prostitution. This is the physical and sexual abuse of a child. I trust the Irish Times will be equally diligent in its reporting, of whatever attempts are made to track down the men who abused her and I hope the poor girl gets the necessary treatment to help her overcome her addictions and trauma. That's from Alan Eustace and I could not agree more with Alan um, and I think it's just important to talk about these things when they arise and hopefully it might change things. Now, back to today's episode. Jen Hogan is a parenting columnist with the Irish Times. She has seven children, one in third level, the rest in primary and secondary. So when I thought, who could I pick the brains of in terms of this back to school week, she was top on my list. As always, when Jen comes on the podcast, she spoke to me from her home office, aka her car, and I started by asking Jen about her own personal situation this week, sending six children back to school. One of whom is starting primary for the very first time. Jen Hogan, this is a very busy week for lots of us. A little bit busier for you. First of all, talk us through your situation in terms of back to school.
0: Okay, so I have seven children, and two of them are in secondary school. One is in third level, so she can look after herself. But two in secondary school, and four in primary school, including one who's due to start school this year. So big milestone for us. For uh, a very last first that's what it is uh, for us this year and um i suppose it's it's kind of a it's a, it's nearly very stressful because um next week cc's the beginning of my children going back to school and we have four different start days four different start times for the primary schools the secondary schoolers i'm worried about whether or not they're actually going to be able to get to school independently they always took dublin bus before but with reduced capacity now and obviously increased demand. I'm not sure. Are, are they still going to be able to get school? We just have to wait and see what happens there. And yeah, I'm basically going to have to try and divide myself into six and get six of them to different places at the same time. So I'm very stressed about that side of things. I'm looking forward to them going back because they really want to go back. And I would have preferred had they gone back the other side of summer, had they got back for a short while uh, even. Um, so I'm glad they're going back. And I'm very much in favor of that. But I am very worried about how the logistics are going to play out. And talk to me a little
1: bit about some of the elements, because there's inconsistencies around the place. So there's some schools saying don't wear ties, there are risk of infection. Mm-hmm. Some schools saying the uniforms have to be freshly laundered every evening. Mm-hmm. So there's kind of an interesting discrepancy between what is being done and that could cause problems.
0: So yeah, there is a lot of inconsistency from what I'm hearing and from my own schools as well. There's mixed messages coming across the board. And I do accept that obviously there needs to be different rules in different campuses because we're dealing with different numbers. We're dealing with different geographical positions and access to, to um, entrance points and stuff. So I do accept that. But I think some of the inconsistencies that are worrying parents, certainly worrying me, are the likes of things like ties. I mean, some schools, my, my own actually included, are saying ties are an infection risk. Now my lads are only delighted not to have to wear ties But at the same time, I'm hearing this is not the case in other schools. And I know one mother mentioned to me that her primary school child is expected to wear a visor in school. And that's not part of the current guidelines or recommendations. So those sort of mixed messages are really stressful for parents. I think the one thing a lot of us are hoping on, I'm certainly hoping on, that might be adopted by a lot of the schools is the no homework. (laughs) That's the one thing I'm hoping will happen because I am hearing... This is something that some schools are adopting because they've decided the school books are to stay in school so that there is no risk of um, cross-contamination with the books. But the constant inconsistency, I think it's worrying because, again, if you look at the washing of clothes, the washing of the uniforms, which is a big one, a big stressor. Um, for lots of mums in particular, because it's us who ends up doing the laundry the majority of the time, that that's not anywhere in the guidelines. And yet we have schools telling us that they want us to provide a freshly laundered uniform or tracksuit every day or at least we have some schools doing that. We don't have that consistent message across the board. And that does worry me a little bit because we all have to work together, getting the kids back to school, keeping the schools open. That's obviously in everybody's um, best interest. But we need consistent advice, I think, really, where possible and and allowing for the different campuses. But uh, the sort of advice that maybe is open to interpretation, it's a little bit dodgy. I'd be worried that you'd have parents choosing to follow what they want to follow because they go, well, sure, that's nonsense. The school down the road isn't asking that, you know? So... They'd be a big concern for me. As I said, the ties, mine are only delighted about that, but um, I don't know that the laundered uniforms are going to cause, uh, my school expects us to have a freshly laundered uniform every day. Well, one of my schools does, the other school doesn't. <laughs> that's, uh, even there, even there's inconsistency within the one family. Um, but that's going to be a huge ask and a huge task for me every day. I never see the end of my laundry basket at best times. Yeah. Uh, I mean, then then looking at, you know, potentially when
1: there is covid outbreaks or even when the kids have a bit of a sniffle or a cold and you're kind of told not to send them in. And that is the other big disruption that we're facing into. How are you looking at that at the moment?
0: I'm worried about that. I mean, I'm. Obviously, you know, I have I've very small children as well as older children and small children tend to get. I mean, how many colds do we get a year? That that sort of thing is a big concern for me. And between that and say the staggered opening times that we have at the moment now it will be reviewed in a couple of weeks. But at the moment, there's an hour and 10 minutes between, say, my first staggered time and my last staggered drop off time between that and the potential that my children could be home for the sort of things they might not normally be home for I would worry the sort of impact that will have on women going forward and particularly women because it is women who pick up the slack there and I suppose I've been flagging this issue a lot because I'm concerned I think it's going to force a generation of women out of work it's going to force a lot of mothers to consider what do I put first my children's education or my job and that's all well and good except there's bills to be paid and even if financially you're able to do that the choice is taken away from you and that's really important I mean for so long women have struggled to try and get into the workforce and be recognized in the workforce and they're asked to juggle everything and they are juggling everything I mean women are amazing but this is a huge demand and the majority of this responsibility is going to fall on women's shoulders so I am I am very worried. I fear that I could find every second day there's another child out of the school. Obviously, it will have a knock-on impact because each child has six siblings. So how that will work and the logistics of that and how I'll manage to work around that, I'm not sure. Because my husband goes to work every day. In our case, he is not at home. He hasn't been at home during any of the lockdown. So it will be a huge stressor and a huge, um, huge problem for me if they're out every second day.
1: Just going back to that issue about whether women are going to have to decide to give up jobs and things, mm. the, the one sort of maybe silver lining to this is that during lockdown, I know not in your case, but in a lot of cases, men and women have been at home, say mm. in heterosexual couples, have been at home together working and men have found themselves more involved perhaps than they might normally be with parenting, with various things around the house than they might have been before. And I would be hopeful. I mean, it could be just me being a glass half full, but perhaps this assumption that it's the woman's job that will kind of take the slack. Mm-hmm. There might be more conversations between couples about, you know, who's going to be the one to kind of downgrade their work. Obviously, I know I take your point that it has been a traditionally, the woman who kind of does that, but perhaps now this new lockdown sort of scenario might mean that this will not be just a foregone conclusion, that there will be discussions between couples and they might, you know, discuss about sharing these things rather than it just being the woman who has to give up jobs or give up part-time work?
0: I mean, we'd hope so. And I think a lot of men got a lot of insights into what women's lives are really like, um, particularly because it is women who do most of the juggling. But I think it will still come down to finances. In the majority case, as we know, with the gender pay gap, it's men who earn more. And when, when push comes to shove, that means that men's jobs will often have to take precedence because families have to live, bills have to be paid. And that that concerns me, I suppose, the most. Plus, I suppose you're more likely to find women are the people who have gone part-time over the course maybe of the school year. And so their job is the one that has already been squeezed and it's maybe just easier to squeeze it a little bit more. So I don't think it's because men don't appreciate or recognise how much women are doing. I think when push comes to shove them when financial considerations are taken into account, it will still be women whose jobs are the ones that will come under pressure. And still those you, women who You're have sort to of smashing my,
1: my glass half full there, aren't you? Smashing it against Mochi. the wall. It's OK. <laughs> I just a bit of a Pollyanna and hoping that things are changing and maybe they are slightly, but definitely, as you say, not not enough. What's your biggest worry facing into this week? I mean, the logistical nightmare for you sounds horrendous, but you get a lot of letters from parents writing in the Irish Times about parenting. What do you feel is the overriding anxiety, not just from parents, but from kids about this new pods, bubbles, constant hand sanitizing Mm -hmm. and not being able to mix with the rest of the school, going in at separate entrances, you know, the staggered drop offs. There's so much there. Do you think there's a kind of an anxiety, a low level anxiety happening with people just facing into the unexpected and not knowing what how it's going to all pan out?
0: I think that's it. I think and I know the guidelines that they were very late um, being issued by the Department of Education and therefore contact from the school was quite late. So a lot of parents didn't have very much information about starting school. I think those concerns still exist until the children actually get back into school and we see how it plays out. When I'm getting um, letters and emails from parents, a lot of the time um, the fears are surrounding obviously vulnerable children and vulnerable families and how that's going to play out. The logistics obviously is huge, the staggered drop-offs, the staggered collections, how people are supposed to work that around work and not everybody is able to work from home so that is going to be hugely problematic. Childcare, childcare has never been a bigger issue because a lot of childminders have pulled out of the childminding market, creches are no longer doing school runs because of the different staggered drop-offs, they're not able to do drops in the mornings or collections in the afternoons, after school clubs are gone after school activities are gone. Children are anxious because six months is a huge portion of a very young life. So they're anxious about what it will look like. Another thing that maybe is being brought up, this one size fits all. So if you have children maybe with additional needs and they're expected to follow the rules of where maybe they're to meet their parents at a particular point, but really they need just a little bit more support from parents, particularly going back and, and at the collection. By the end. There's a lot of parents who have children with additional needs who are very worried about that The masks and the visors and how that will work safe for children, maybe not only children with autism, but children maybe with hearing difficulties and the sort of problems that will create. Even if you think about the very young children and junior infants and senior infants, they're still very much learning to speak. They're expanding their vocabulary. How will all this work if they have limited interactions? And how will it work if you have a child who's fretful and they can't play with their brother or sister in the yard who maybe they were able to play with before? So there are still a lot of anxiety, but I think the unknown is creating a huge amount of anxiety. Hopefully when we settle back into our routine and we get used to it. I hate to hear children are resilient. I know people use this all the time and it's a nice comfort blanket for us as adults, but I think it's a little bit dismissive of the ordeal that children have been through too. So um, yeah, anytime somebody says that to me, I go, yeah, but you know." at the same time, let's not make little of what they've been through. It has been a huge six months for them. I mean, I have my own kids asking me, when is coronavirus going away? And I wish, I just wish I had that answer for them. I wish I had, there was an end point in sight I think as adults we'd love that never mind children but I hope the new normal for them will be somewhat similar to the old normal and it won't be as bad as we all fear I think as I said when they get back I think it'll be easier then because we'll have an idea of what's expected and hopefully the children just will be so thrilled to see some of their friends and their pods and bubbles and even I suppose the mixture that's actually something I'm going to see because I have younger children who won't have to socially distance older children who will have to socially distance older children again who have to wear masks And then they all come home and mix in the evening. So it'll be interesting to get that bit of perspective from all of them. How does school look now? I'm I'm curious to hear that myself. Well,
1: one thing that's gone is the small talk at the school gate because we have to drop and run. We're not allowed to hang around chatting. I'm kind of glad about that because I find that kind of difficult sometimes. But you might enjoy it. I don't know. Will you miss that ritual?
0: I'll miss that. I think working from home, I know lots of people have sung the praises of working from home. I hate working from home. I work from home because I have to work from home because I have millions of kids and it's the only way I can work around. It. But I hate working from home. And actually those sort of interactions are the things that keep me sane, having the chats with adults, just passing the time. I do have my worries about how that'll play out again with the staggered drop-offs because we're not supposed to hang around the school, but I don't see parents running back home and running back down again. Obviously, we're being encouraged to walk or cycle to school if we can. Rainy days, you know, Ireland and it's notorious weather. If they're hanging around, I can see parents going back to cars, but I will miss that whole interaction. I think it's a great way of getting to know parents. I think what's also sad is we might see a reduction in playdates. Now, I'm not going to pretend I'm a huge fan of playdates, but it's another side of things where you talk to parents and maybe you take turns having each other's kids over and it helps the younger children. I'm thinking of my junior infants settle in. I imagine a lot of those things are not going to happen anymore. And again, it's a way to get to know the other parents too. So there's a huge amount of those rituals, just even feeling, you know, other adults. So there, you get to talk to other adults whose children play with your children. I I find great comfort in that. And plus, I love people. I love talking. So I will I like people
1: too. I just find the weather chats on the thing, I find it a little bit draining. That's all. There's a slight introvert to me that finds that a little bit difficult. But I totally appreciate it, especially if, you know, when you're not getting to mix with loads Mm. of people through your work, which I kind of do. So anyway, I'm sorry for your troubles, Jen. All of them, all the millions of troubles that you have and all the parents around the country and all the kids. But hopefully we'll kind of get through and perhaps it won't be quite as bad as maybe it seems at this end and maybe you'll come back in a couple of weeks and you can tell me all about it
0: absolutely and i'm hoping it's going to be fabulous i i'm so thrilled they're going back that was my biggest fear all along And not as is often um, painted as a parent who just wants to get rid of their kids. I think that's, again, another very convenient. Oh, well, she's got seven of them. She just wants them out the door. Not at all. I'm so glad for them that they're getting back. They have missed school. They have missed their friends. They've missed their teachers. They've missed their routine. And I'm so thrilled that they're going back. And I'm so happy for them. But I will be sad that for the first time in six months, for the first time in 19 years, there will be nobody at home anymore. I think there's a part of me there who's feeling very emotional about that. So it could be a teary week, I think.
1: I think it will, Jen, in more ways than one, but we'll find out in a couple of weeks from you. Thank you so much for joining us and talking my to pleasure. back to school. And I hope it all goes well for you. Well, that was Jen Hogan there. Thanks very much, Jen. And I'm going to get her back in a couple of weeks to see how things panned out. I'm a bit nervous myself for my girls. They're actually starting a new school this week, as well as facing into all the COVID regulations and changes. So, I'm wishing the best for them and for all kids and parents and grandparents and guardians at this quite tricky time. Escape the ordinary with Green and Black's organic chocolate, sponsor of the Women's Podcast, a rich, intense chocolate to savor. Keeping with the theme, a couple of days ago, I spoke to Mally Coyne, a child psychologist, who has just written a fascinating book on parenting the anxious child called Love In, Love Out. Mally spoke to me about her own anxious childhood, about the strategies she uses with parents who are trying to navigate a world where their children are fearful or being held back by anxiety. And I have to say, I found her full of great common sense. And I think this conversation will be of interest, not just to parents, but anyone who has an interest in how we move through the world as small people or bigger people. Here she is, Mally Coyne. Mali, you describe yourself as an anxious child. So tell us a little bit about your own upbringing.
2: Well, I was born in France and I lived in lots of different countries because my father was a diplomat. And um, around, I think, you know, they say about 15 percent of children are born with an anxious temperament. And I'd say I probably was one of those. Um, and around the age of eight or nine, when we were living in Holland, I started to kind of experience like real just kind of panic at going to places like a beach or, um, I started having really bad stomach aches and, you know, they really were impacting on me to the point that my parents brought me to the doctor and the doctor actually prescribed a placebo at the time, this white powder. And the reason I found out about it is because my brother and sister told me it was a placebo. Um, But I think really, if I were to think, you know, I was probably very kind of attuned. They say that anxious kids and anxious adults are very attuned to what's going on around them. They they kind of they're looking out to the world with, you know, threat spectacles kind of thing. And I'd say I probably was very conscious of anything that was going on at home, Um, you know, with the fact that we were moving around all the time, you know, kind of like I suppose ups and downs in the in the home life and because we didn't really have many supports outside of home because we kept moving from one place to another so we didn't have the auntie or the granny or you know other people we didn't have constants in our lives because we were moving every few years I think that really kind of had an impact on me okay
1: and then you left and you moved to Dublin to Trinity College uh
2: why did you choose Trinity as a matter of interest because my sister was going to Trinity, and um, I always wanted to come back to Ireland. We used to my mom is Irish, my father's Dutch, and we used to come to Dublin every summer anyway, and then to Cork, to Inshigello, where my mom still has a house. My dad lives in Spain at the moment. Um, So, yeah, I just wanted to go to Trinity because I always just saw the building. And I just I don't know, I was in awe of the place whenever we went to visit during the summer. And so I was just delighted then to get in into psychology there eventually.
1: And why psychology? Why did it interest you?
2: I think they say there's a really good book out there called um, The Drama of Being a Child by Alice Miller. And basically it says that people go into helping professions, be it psychology, nursing, whatever it is, care work, because you've played that role as a child in your family. You know, and I think that role then becomes very comfortable to you. So then, when you, when around the age of fifteen, I was living in Korea then, which is you know a very far away kind of place. Um, but I became a peer counselor to to my peers, and I started doing psychology in school, and I was just really interested in it. So, and I always wanted to work with children, so I knew that that was something I'd I'd like to do. So I think it's that whole. If you're going to be a caregiver in your family, you might as well do it as your job. So you have spent the last uh, number of
1: years working particularly with children. And tell me about this uh, idea of the anxious child and how you've seen it kind of increase, because it's something we hear about a lot as as our lives as parents have got busier, children's growing up experiences may be different there's a lot of screens obviously involved which is a big thing and just the fact that they don't get as much perhaps one-on-one attention as maybe we did growing up or some of us did anyway what what have you noticed yourself about kind of what things people were coming to you about their children that were that were maybe different or or gave you pause
2: well, I suppose I've always, like, I've worked as a clinical psychologist for many years, and then, you know, the issues tend to have changed, and anxiety seems to have come up as one of the bigger issues. This is pre-COVID, um, you know, pre-all that. Um, just in terms of, I think sometimes it can be that a child has an anxious temperament and then a life event might occur, like they nearly drown in a pool or something big happens, a granny dies or something. And then suddenly they're just kind of pulled into a lot of anxiety and their parents can be quite anxious too, or a parent can be anxious. Um, But I think in the world that we were living in, I'm saying we were living in, I hope we don't go back to that world um, really, is that. I call it the perfect storm where we all have this brain that's kind of focused towards threat. So you have that anyway, and we've had that as humans since the beginning of time. But if you combine that with all of the different stuff that's out there in terms of, you know, this focus on, results rather than the process the focus on doing all the time rather than being you know i facilitated a webinar a few weeks ago and a parent said that they brought their child to three birthday parties on one day and it's only during the lockdown that they reflected on whether that was a a good thing for them as a family to be running around but why were they doing it because we live in fear of our children missing out on crucial opportunities or to be able to show off their talents. It's like we, it's like parents, you know, parent in the way that they work. It's like a task to be undertaken, to be done perfectly. And that's why I kind of always talk about good enough parenting and that children learn from us being human and from messing up and not getting it right all the time and not being with them all the time and giving them freedom to play and to be. Um, So I think, probably the last few months have been useful for us in terms of reflecting on what parts of normal are worth rushing back to.
1: Yeah, I'm nodding away as you're speaking. It all makes perfect sense. And I think without being too uh, trite and talking about maybe some good things that have come out of lockdown, I definitely think that reflection is something uh, that we've all kind of had to look at the way we parented before versus now and whether we need to kind of take a lot of lessons from it as we go forward however long this thing lasts. um, I want to ask you about the title of the book because I have a friend who's just started the book and I was talking to her earlier um, because I was going to be speaking to you and she was saying even the title has really helped her because now when she's going to kind of um blow up or or get react to something that's going on. Um, she's taking the time to think of that phrase, love in, love out. So can you explain where you got it um, and the conversations with your friend that inspired the title?
2: Yeah, I, I had written kind of maybe, I don't know, the first quarter of the book and I was looking for titles and I used to kind of obsess over titles, spend ages try, trying to come up with a title when I was meant to be actually writing because you do anything but write when you're meant to be writing, um, even are in your clothes. But anyway, yeah, I just, um, I had met this friend called Ruth in the post-labor ward after we had our second babies. And for some reason, it's funny, like in your 40s, sometimes I find it hard to make new friends as I get older. Maybe a lot of people feel like that. But we just immediately connected myself and Ruth, you know, uh, in opposite beds, you know, our boobs leaking and just kind of really like, you know, in a very human, vulnerable state. And... And we kind of, uh, we we began a friendship, really. And then it was only, we were in a coffee shop one day and I was like, look, you know, I, I wasn't actually even talking about the book title, but she was telling me she's a single mom of two kids and um, she was really struggling with one of her children one day. And she just, she had heard this mantra, love in, love out. And it kind of, I think it was inspired a little bit from the Glennon Doyle books. There's a book called Untamed and there's two others that are amazing but you know it, it um it didn't come from Glenn and Doyle because I've later checked and I couldn't find it. but in any case it's a it's a mantra that she uses to kind of calm herself and to breathe before she reacts to her children. Um, And I just thought, God, I love that. And then I just went home and I Googled it. And it is a rap song with loads of curse words. Um, But there is no love in love out. I think I did see it in the Untamed book, which came out subsequently, you know, where Glennon talks about, you know, like um, not letting people into her home, you know, after she kind of anyway, she had issues with her sexuality and that. But in any case, Yeah, I just thought it was a lovely mantra. And then when I brought it to the editor or to the publisher, he really liked it. And we had been kind of, you know, I just I think it's it feels like a wave coming in and out. There's so many different meanings to it. You can kind of say, I pour love into myself. I pour love out to my kids you know, it's, it's kind of like compassion in, compassion out. It helps you to be able to breathe. And whatever mantra you use, and I do use a lot of Eastern concepts in my book, like mantras and lotus and, you know, compassion-focused therapy, a lot of that is is kind of Eastern-based. I just think they have a lot to teach us about how to be rather than to do all the time. And, and I think it's a really helpful one. So I'm delighted to hear that your friend has benefited.
1: She's finding it very useful because the breathing and just taking a moment before we just explode or we hear the rumbles of a disagreement and we immediately plow in to kind of stop it instead of taking a moment to just try and understand what's going on, uh, which I think is why your book is so helpful. So let's talk about compassion a bit, because if this is if your book is a kind of a roadmap for parents, one of the first things you're talking about is That that the parent has to have that compassion for themselves before anything, really, that they have to be kind of understanding where they're coming from. Can you talk a little bit about that in terms of how people parent an anxious child?
2: Yeah, Roisin, I had read a lot of books on anxiety that were very much focused on like techniques to help parents. And I know that anxious very often if there's a child who's anxious there, I always say To the parent, does your child remind you of anybody you know? Because sometimes the parent can also be anxious, whether they were anxious to begin with or whether they're anxious because their child is anxious. And by the way, when I talk about that, it's totally a no-blame kind of scenario um, because I can be anxious as a parent too and I can understand why parents are anxious in the world we live in. But I just find that a lot of parents come to me and they say, You know, my child is anxious and I feel like I'm failing as a parent. You know, I'm failing. I'm not doing this right. I don't know why they're worried about going back to school or whatever it is that's going on for them. And that is like the first thing I need to address. If a parent says I'm failing as a parent or I'm not doing good enough at this job, I feel like there's no point in moving straight away to this is the technique you should use, even though it might kind of reassure them and make them feel like better in the moment. I kind of think that it's more of like an inside job. So like pretty much the first half of my book is based on really kind of like parents exploring their shark music. There's a lovely concept in there, which is that circle of security concept about where, when your children are presenting you with needs um, that you kind of, it, it's it's basically this idea of uh, we sh- in a parenting course that we run, we show parents a path and they go down that path and we play we play um, beautiful music in the background. And we then ask parents, how do you feel about going down that path towards the beach? Parents are like, oh, I feel brilliant. I feel lovely. I feel relaxed. This is nice. And then the second clip is showing the same exact video with Jaws music playing in the background. And we ask parents, how do you feel? And they say, oh, my God, I feel really worried. What's behind the, the tree, blah, 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 and all that. So basically... Your childhood wounds, the things that have happened, the way your feelings were re- were responded to as a child, your anxiety, your anger, your shame, lots of different things. That actually is the shark music that you hear when your child presents you with the same need. So for me, my shark music, for some reason, I freeze when my kids get hurt. Maybe not a big hurt, but a small hurt. And I just feel really kind of frozen and impatient sometimes um you know i have this real control for, like one of the case studies in my book is about me and i i used to have and i'm more aware of it now this kind of controlling thing where if my 6 year old gets out of bed after i've put her in cuz she wants six cellular blankets on top of her still i get really kind of antsy and go oh my god you know and she might just be coming in to help her older sister who's upset about something and you know, I've learned to kind of recognize that I'm kind of trying to help parents to just recognize what that shark music makes them feel because it's literally this unconscious pattern in your brain. It, it has an impact on your body. And it's about being aware of, of that when it happens, because if you're aware of it, then you have a choice in how you re- respond to it. And that's why that's the first step in my book in terms of the approach I use.
1: That's really interesting. And the other thing I think it's funny, I'm talking about my friend again, because in the conversation we were talking about stuff that she's going through and she was whispering the word anxious because she, her child was in um earshot. And I just think you're, it's interesting, the part in your book where you say that talking about anxiety and talking about exactly what's going on for a child is not going to make the anxiety worse. But I think we have as parents an idea like that. Like it's a word that if we say it out loud, if we really name what's happening, then it's going to kind of validate it or make it an okay state. And we don't want to do that. Can you can you talk a little bit about that and about why actually naming the stuff, you know, it's, it's just really helpful. To do that. Yeah,
2: that came from a parent who came into me and actually said that a, that um her child was being seen by a psychotherapist. And the psychotherapist had suggested that perhaps um the child wouldn't, you know, the parent wouldn't speak to the child about anxiety in between the sessions in case it would kind of inflate the issue in some way. And I suppose for me, I'm just really all about like, you know feelings like anxiety anger shame you know the ones that traditionally we see as sadness as negative feelings they're and pain they're all feelings and that's okay so like I kind of talk about anxiety being like a wave and if we're more accepting of the fact that we can all be anxious sometimes it's not this big oh my god that's a terrible word to use it's okay to say that maybe in that situation with your friend You know, whether she was saying anxiety or not, like, you know, maybe depending on the age of the child, they may or may not be happy to be spoken about in a particular way. You know, I I guess I understand that. But I think it's you know, my point is it's okay to talk to your child about anxiety and it's okay to to use the words. And I think it's helpful to talk to them about what anxiety does to them. So I have lots of like anxiety made simple parts in my book. That actually, like, there's a gingerbread man diagram with all about like what happens in their bodies when they're anxious um, and what happens in all our bodies. Cause it's like this common human response we all have to threat. It's nothing to be ashamed of. And it's just basically like I kind of talk about it being like, it's your healthy brain doing exactly what it's meant to be doing, except sometimes for some of us, it just gets a bit overactive and it kind of brings on these physical feelings we have in our bodies. It brings on these kind of, you know, negative or these thoughts where you're afraid of the future or of the past and, and then it kind of makes us avoid situations or else it kind of stops us from doing things that we really enjoy. So it's really kind of normalizing it because there's nothing wrong with being anxious
1: if you don't mind me putting you on the spot, we had a case study sent in by a listener for, about their child. And um, I just thought it might be useful to kind of use an example. And you could maybe talk us through the type of strategies that you might help people with. So it's a 10 year old girl who um is very afraid of their parents when they're outside, something terrible happening to them. So whether they're going on a bike or they're going in a car or whatever mode of transport, or wherever them not being in the house means that they get extremely worried that that something terrible is going to happen, i.e., that they're going to die or fall off their bike or crash in the car, and it's it's a huge huge um feeling that is constant. So as a result, the parents have to navigate this every time they go anywhere. There's a conversation before they go. There's several phone calls while they're away. It's a constant constant thing, and I know this person was feeling like they were reacting not well to it by minimising it and sort of saying, well, of course, this isn't logical. Why are you doing this? You know, what's your problem? They realise that's probably not the way to go, but are finding it very frustrating because the fears that the child have seem so illogical and irrational. And this kind of constant then frustration and then the child is feeling like they're not being heard or understood um, and that their very genuine fears are being sort of minimised or dismissed and so that's just one example. And I imagine while the specifics might be different, is that a kind of common thread? It's something that seems to the parent totally like ridiculous to be worrying about every second of the day. And yet for the child, it is so uh, big and overwhelming and something they can't seem to get out of their mind. <laughs> well, I know we can't do everything here on this podcast, but is there is is that a good way to kind of explain the strategies that you explore in the book?
2: Yeah, I think so. And did you say she was 10 years old? Yes. Yeah. yeah.
1: And actually, I've noticed a lot of friends with similar age children, various things are upcoming. I wondered, is that a particular age where where things manifest naturally?
2: Absolutely. Around eight, nine, ten is when you become more aware of, the, I suppose, the outside world, the dangers of it. And, you know, that kind of separation from your parents starts to happen where you start to kind of look outwards more towards your peers But I suppose what I really want to say is that that child's anxiety feels really real to her. My anxiety felt so real. And if somebody, if, you know, your parent, you as a parent, you are their recruit, you are their sense of safe. So if you tell them that there's nothing to worry about, then suddenly their sense of threat gets heightened because the one person that they've gone to to recruit for their safe for safety has told them there's nothing wrong. You know, and I actually use a metaphor in the book about um, like a car with its kind of brakes not working and how that might feel for the child. You know, they're saying my brakes are not working. The parent is saying you're just fine. And by the way, I know exactly why parents do that, because their children's pain brings up anxiety or panic for them, or they don't want to see their child in pain, or they see it as that's ridiculous. Like I'm, I'm going to be fine. It's fine. And I suppose in that, situation, I'd wonder whether the child is worried about their parent in any way. Has there has something happened where the child has become worried about separating from their parents? Has somebody died? Have they seen something on the news where people have died of a car crash? And, you know, maybe that's something that would need to be talked about. But I think, you know, in my book, I use the safe approach, which is all about kind of following you know, the the self-care being the first aspect, which we've already spoken about. So asking the parent to kind of wonder what, what, does, what happens to you when your child says, I don't want to get in the car. Um, How does that feel for you? You know, and just kind of to reflect on that for themselves and to bring kindness to themselves in that moment. It's OK to feel frozen. It's OK not to have the answers. It's OK to be frustrated. And, you know, and then to kind of move on to like, so, Anchoring strategies, the A, which is about like, you know, when your child is in that fight or flight mode, telling them there's no threat will increase their sense of threat. So you need to bring down, they have adrenaline rushing through their bodies. That stuff has all happened. Their bodies have started reacting, their thoughts have started going to, oh my God, you're gonna die. Um, they're they're starting to want to avoid very understandably, because if you avoid a situation, you're safer, you feel safer. So for them, I think in that, in that, in that, I kind of, I use the approach. One of them is like shaking on purpose, which is like, use the adrenaline. So I have loads of anchoring strategies in my book, but use their adrenaline in a way that gets them to shake it out. So get them to like shake, you know, jump up and down, shake it out when they're feeling like that. Or you can use the five, four, three, two, one strategy, which is five things you see, four things you hear, three things you, you smell, that kind of thing. So kind of, you know, getting them a bit distracted with that or else having this little sensory box because if we engage our senses, it really helps us with our anxiety. So have a little sensory box of things that she can touch or pull or whatever it is And she can even bring that in the car with her. But what I would say is try not to, um, you know, avoidance makes the problem worse. So obviously, you know, it's it's best not to avoid the situation, but I think to do it in small steps. And then the efforts for feeling felt, which is really validating your child's experience and kind of listening to what they have to say and maybe unpacking their worry and saying, what part of going in the car are you most worried about? Is it when we're in the car and you're not there? Is it about, so it's it's like when you, is there something you've seen that upset you? You're unpacking because it's usually, they have very black and white thoughts and you're trying to kind of pick them, you know, and then, and getting them to tell the story of why they're they're anxious. And you can use a worry box even for that at night where you get them to talk about their worries only for a certain amount of time, not Kind of ad nauseum time, and then the final step is about empowerment, which is basically the idea of there's no point in moving to like doing a fear ladder, which is one of the things that you can do. Which I have the instructions in my book where you start with the you know the least fearful thing, and then you move on to the more fearful thing to build them up to to something, and then you reward them kind of all the way. Um, But there's no point in doing that until they actually feel safe within their bodies. So I think. For this parent to start with really reflecting on how she feels in the moment, how she reacts and knowing she has a choice in that and trying to really help her child to feel safe and have little strategies for feeling safe because different stuff will suit different kids and then really helping her to feel validated. And then I promise even if you do that, it'll kind of pave the way towards her being able to kind of face some of those fears.
1: You mentioned your very good metaphor about the faulty car. Um, you mentioned it briefly there. Would you mind going into it? because I do think it's a very good example and a way to help, because it it's a very hard thing for parents to understand. I think um, just what is going on with the person because especially when it's those those irrational fears and when they're they just seem to be so upset about essentially nothing in your eyes, like it doesn't seem like anything. So tell us the 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 the, it's like the child as the driver of this car. Tell us a little bit about that metaphor, because I actually think it's very useful. It's it's something that really jumped out at me from the book.
2: Well, you know, what I, what I remember from it is that a child is like the car, you know, so the car is going down this motorway really, really fast. And next thing feels like there's something wrong with my brakes. You know, it just doesn't feel quite right. I, I need to do something about that. The car goes to the first mechanic and the first mechanic tells them, oh, there's nothing wrong with your brakes. They're perfectly fine. I've checked underneath. I've looked everywhere. It's totally grand. No problem at all. Then the car and the car goes back on the motorway and feels it again and just, you know, goes back to the first mechanic and says, no, seriously, there's something really, really wrong here. I'm not feeling right. This is not right. And the first mechanic, who's actually the parent, says oh you know but honestly I've checked and everything is fine really there's nothing wrong you know and so the child the child car decides that they're not going to go on the motorway anymore because every time they go on the motorway it makes their brakes feel kind of wonky so they decide that they're just going to travel on smaller roads um, to the point that they decide they're not going to travel in the car at all but then they do meet a second mechanic along the way who says oh yeah, I, I I can see how you might feel that way. Sometimes when cars go on motorways, it can make brakes feel a little bit unsteady. but really, you know if um if I can kind of like, Uh, you know, if if you know what's going on with your car when that happens and this is what you can do to help yourself, then your car won't feel so much like this. And so it's kind of like that second mechanic is the understanding, I suppose, parent who says, I know that your body feels like that and focuses on where do you feel it in your body and what's that like for you and what kind of thoughts are you having and focuses on the child and kind of accepts it for what it is rather than trying to push it away and I think it's just a it's a metaphor that I use with parents in anxiety groups that I run and it really kind of helps them to see that this feels real like this is no joke like and that is why I wrote the book you know but the last quote of my book is basically saying You know, I hope I've done you guys justice. And I'm talking to children and I'm talking to anxious kids and I'm talking to parents who used to be anxious kids. You know, I just really, that was for me the most important thing.
1: Well, this is also, apart from lockdown, which brought in a load of different things. I mean, for some people, it meant they could spend more time with their parents, which probably helped. And for other people, they were in difficult, anxiety-making situations at home. But now we're in the back-to-school phase. And are you hearing a lot about... Children who are sort of worrying about that. Something that used to be so familiar and so normal is now something where there's going to be all these different protocols, whether it's face masks and washing things and being in pods and bubbles and school is going to be very different. Have you any advice for parents and children coming back into that situation who are feeling worried about it?
2: Yeah, I think, you know... There's lots of feelings out there at the moment. Like I, you know, I, I I facilitated a webinar last week with loads of parents that kind of spoke about just feeling lots of feelings, you know, and I think kids are feeling it as well. There's an excitement about going back into the routine of school and of seeing friends again. Um, but then there's so much uncertainty about what's that actually going to look like for parents. There's uncertainty about like, you know, how am I going to do the drop off and collection and, you know, like I, you know, for secondary school kids having to go in with a mask, I think that's really hard, you know, and I think there's going to be things that are difficult. And there is, you know, and then others are kind of more worried about like health. And there are children who are worried about like they've been told for the last few months, wash your hands, stay at home, you know, like keep yourself away from people. And then suddenly, you know, even kids with social anxiety i have heard in the last few months have felt quite comfortable being at home because they were with their parents safe and they didn't have to kind of be out there socializing. They were encouraged not to socialize. So I think there's an awful lot of feelings out there at the moment, but I think what's really important to kind of stress is that, you know, we were talking about, and I really, and I you mentioned this in my book as well about, you know, be, being called a snowflake generation and talking about kids in a particular way. I, I, that really kind of irks me. Cause I'm like, well, rather than branding a whole generation with a word, should we not encourage them to, you know, to kind of learn resilience or to, and I suppose you learn resilience by facing a manageable threat and having a soothing presence by your side. And I think the last few months have really taught us like who knew when we collected our kids on that rainy, well, it was raining Galway always on the 12th of March that we wouldn't have them back in school for six months. And like, it, it caused a lot of issues for many people, because people were afraid. People didn't know how long this was going to go on for. There was a lot of fears over, you know, kind of family well-being. Lots of us have gone through many, you know, relationship difficulties, lots of different things. And we many of us coped, and our children coped. And we mightn't have believed that our kids would cope without so much. And I think, For me, it really taught me that my kids needed a lot less than I thought they needed. They didn't need an activity every day. They didn't need to be busy all the time. That even going back to the simplicity of life was useful. And I think if parents think of, yes, I know you're anxious and I'm anxious and uncertain about my kids going back to school and I'm thankful it's, you know, it's like uh, on, you know, happening in a few days, but I just feel like You know, we we managed before our children managed before and we will cope with whatever is to come. And one interesting thing that a parent said last week was that they wondered, they think their child's adjustment back into school will be really dependent on how welcomed that child feels going into school. And whilst I know teachers can't hug the kids and all of that, but I think if children feel welcomed and a warm response coming back into school, even though you know, things are going to look different. And if parents kind of present a kind of, um, you don't have to be fakely optimistic, but if you just, if you can't answer the question, say, I don't really know the answer to that, but we'll see what happens and we'll get support if we need it. If your child knows that you'll just kind of adopt this, we'll see what happens approach, but really kind of, you know, supporting them in that and telling them, you know, I even said to my child, to my daughter yesterday, how are you feeling? What are the feelings you have about going back to school? I didn't say what anxiety did you feel? I just said, what are the feelings? And she said, well, I'm feeling excited because I'm going to see my friends again, but I'm feeling a bit worried because I don't know what's going to happen. So lots of different feelings and that's okay. Uh, I know you wrote
1: the book um, to offer hope rather than to make people feel like this is such a nightmare, this ans- anxious children everywhere. So just could you leave us with the final message of hope around this for people maybe who are listening, who are struggling because there's the two sides. It's horrible to see your child in any kind of discomfort or pain. So that adds something. But also the thing you mentioned at the very beginning of that feeling of failure, which um. Is something that a lot of us experience where we think we're doing it wrong, that it's our fault, that if our child is acting this way, then we are obviously to blame. We have messed up somehow. And that can be very overwhelming, too. So maybe an optimistic message of hope that there is a way out of that.
2: Well, I think, the you know, one of the first quotes in my book is that the parent child relationship is one of the most powerful mental health interventions known to mankind. And I think. Yes, that puts pressure on parents to know how important their relationship it is. But I think it also provides hope because I I would like to even see it. You know, I, I would like my book to empower parents to know that you can even use your child's anxiety right now as an opportunity to connect with them. And that it's not all doom and gloom. This is, you know, our children are going to have difficult feelings. This just happens to be one of them. And you are able to help them with it. You don't have to be perfect. You know, there's always opportunities to repair after ruptures. I talk about that as well. And I think you're doing an amazing job, you know, as a parent who... Nobody gives us a manual. It's the hardest job in the world. I've had real issues with it myself, becoming a parent. I think some parents, some people have more issues than others. But I think this is an opportunity for you to maybe just reflect on what it is that you need in your life so that you're able to bring that kind of love out to your children. Because I think, you know, we all have that critical voice inside our heads that tells us we're not doing it good enough or that we're crap. And I think rather than I, I don't want you to push away that voice, that voice is there to keep you safe, but your voice has become maybe a bit too loud sometimes because you're afraid, and that's okay. I want you to just turn the volume down on that voice and turn the volume up on the one that says "It's okay, everybody struggles. The whole world struggled during during coronavirus, and the whole world struggles with anxiety. There's lots of anxious kids. It's not a reflection on you and the fact that you're even trying to help them is a huge kind of like testament to you know how caring you are as a parent and I think you know you're doing a fab job so you know perfect isn't what we're what we need it's good enough and I just really hope that this brings you some kind of light and um that it helps you and your children
1: the book is called a love in love out as we said it's a gorgeous message and it's full of practical examples and case studies and tips for people. I'm sure people are gonna be sort of jumping out of the shelves. Isn't Mally? Is it doing well? Are you happy?
2: Yeah, I'm really happy with it. Like, um I mean, for me it wasn't about like bestseller or not bestseller or whatever. It has done really well, but it's about the messages you get from people saying, This actually really helped me with my child or this helped me to even look at myself. And um, that's for me, that's gold dust. That really is. Well,
1: thank you very much for coming on and the best of luck with everything. Mally Thanks for Coyne. having me, Roisin. That was Mally Coyne there in the book, which I really recommend is Love In, Love Out. And that's all we have time for today. We're back to two episodes a week. More good news. And so I'll talk to you again on Thursday. The podcast is produced by me, Roisin Ingle, and by Suzanne Brennan. JJ Vernon on sound hope the week goes well for you whatever you're doing mind yourselves and I'll talk to you next time